and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast, going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Fish, and I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 55th episode of the Nauticast entitled Mother and Son, an analysis of Game of Thrones' Catelyn 8 in which Catelyn returns to the north doing nothing wrong as she always does to find her red-faced, squalling infant firstborn all grown up and leading an army. Wow. Big big change from being a squalling red-faced newborn, huh? I just think of the moment in Mulan when the Eddie Murphy dragon goes, my baby's all grown up and saving China. That's, that's the chapter. <laughs> that's... That's pretty accurate. I like that comparison. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our ever-growing small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, and Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Source. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. And as we say in all episodes, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Matt Kay, a sworn sword, who asks, Guys, love the podcast, and had a question about the Mira theory that Chloe hinted at. <laughs> Google searches just give results for and against the Mira and John twin theories. Is the theory more that Mrs. Reed equals Ashara, and it was more a game of medieval telephone, Arthur to Ashara to Howland to Ned, on how Ned knew where to find Liana so quick? It's a great question, Sir Matt. It's in reference to a kind of cluster of theories around Ashara Dane, that uh, suggest in various permutations that it was through Arthur and Ashara Dane that Ned was able to find the Tower of Joy, that they told him, Ashara told Ned after learning from her brother where Lyanna Stark was because she had forged a connection with him at Harrenhal and because Ned was, was searching for his sister in the wake of the functional end of Robert's Rebellion. Many of the theories, including the one advocated so strongly and well by uh, Chloe Ketchum, a.k.a. Liza Narber from <laughs> Girls Gone Canon, include the idea that Ashara Dane in fact, did survive the Roberts Rebellion era that she is currently living in the neck as a Gianna Reed, mm. and that she uh, she married Howland Reed after the war. And I think there is a lot of strong evidence for that in the way Martin has talked about Ashara and spin cage about how no one ever found her body, and about how a lot of surrounding House Reed and the backstory are very vague and hinted at and, and kept out of our eyes, and how Ashara pops up not only as a red herring for John's parentage, but kind of this tragic figure of the Rebellion era as a whole. So I think there's a lot of merit to a lot of those theories, although I, I do say so with the caveat that I think House Dane's role in the overarching story has changed quite a bit in the writing process. I think they were originally supposed to be much more prominent than they currently are if you look at the mentions of Ashara in the first book and Edric Dane being introduced in the third book, but I think the lack mm -hmm. of the five-year gap may have led to a reduced or possibly different role for House Dane in that Martin is using Ario Hoda as a POV now on the Starfall Hunt for Darkstar as a way to get what he can out of House Dane in the series. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that when you look at George's original intention, it seems to be that he was setting House Dane up to be a major player in a post-five-year gap, A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think one of the things I think is, was really fascinating about the idea that Shardane is Diana Reed is that for me personally, 
let's dial back to like 2015, 2016. I thought this was just utter tinfoil nonsense, ridiculous, ridiculousity. You want to, that's not a real word, but that's okay. Um, the, the reason why I thought it was so ridiculous is like, oh, how could this person assume a different identity and be up in the neck? And how could she get away with that? Well, so about a year and a half ago, I was doing a project in which I was going through every single So Spake Martin that George R. R. Martin ever said, every single utterance he's ever made about the series. And I kept hitting a repeated theme that things like Chardin's body was never found. A Chardin, a Chardin, a Chardin, the history of a Chardin was yet to be revealed. And I kept thinking, like, how was that actually going to be revealed in A Song of Ice and Fire, say, in The Winds of Winter? So I think that Martin has set the stage for a Chardin to reappear in the story. Something that Chloe has argued before is that you look at the characters around Young Griff and how they seem to form these kind of seer D-list rebellion characters like John Connington who have, or, or desperate cast-offs and exiles, as he describes the Golden Company. So Ashar being around really functions in the same logic, where you have the, the theory that uh, Lem, Lemon Cloak from the Brotherhood Without Banners is actually Richard Lawnmouth, mm-hmm. the, the Knight of Skulls and Kisses from the Roberts Rebellion backstory. So a lot of these characters are still hanging around with their various griefs and vengeances. And what, what makes the theory compelling for me, not just from a logistical standpoint, but from a dramatic standpoint, is the idea that Ashara is the one character in this generation to have moved on, to yeah. like not be haunted by her ghosts in the way we're always talking about how Ned and Robert and Jamie and Barbie and John Con are, that she's found some peace and that no one knows where she is and she's she has to, she's gotten to have kids. But of course, that, that leads to a whole other sorrow when you get to what's going to happen to Jojen and Mira. But that sorrow will await their own introduction in A Clash of Kings. I think that Em and I are both coming down that on the idea that Ashara Dane is still alive and is posing as Gianna Reed in the neck. I think uh, Chloe has more things to bring to the fore. Uh, I know that she has talked with both of us about some of her ideas, and I don't want to spoil or, or preempt them necessarily. So, Chloe, get to writing. We're all waiting for this grand massive theory to come about, aren't we? Officially, I urge her to take her own time, just as George R. did. So thank you, Sir Matt, for the question. So one of the things is that if you're one of our $10 and above patrons, you have the ability to ask us questions that we will have to answer on this podcast itself. We do have a running list of questions here, so I think you guys will enjoy some of the ones coming up. And as always, if you're one of our $10 above sworn sword patrons, feel free to reach out to us and ask your questions, and we will answer them at some point down the road. Another feature of our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoif is that we have special monthly episodes coming your way. And our next episode is coming out, as you guys are listening to this, on Thursday for all $5 above patrons, and a few days before that for our Kingsguard and Small Council patrons. And that episode is going to be all about our predictions for Season 8 of Game of Thrones, in which we will be absolutely correct. We will in no way go back and edit the episode after the season is out no. to make, make sure we were correct about everything. We have far too much integrity to ever do such a thing. We, we, are, we are so integrity people. We are major integrity people. We are untarnished paragons of decency, just like our grandfather Barristan Selmy. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> you heard me, Jeff. It's canon now. It's not canon. Barristan is not a paragon of, ah, whatever. So again, check that out. That'll be coming your way starting on the 26th for our small council, 27th for our Kingsguard, and the 28th of March for all of our poor fellows and above patrons at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. So here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Catelyn 8. Through the fog, Catelyn Stark, Brendan Tully, and her Manderly entourage can just make out the Stark banner high atop Moat Kaelin, a dire wolf of House Stark, gray upon its icy field. Catelyn thanks the gods, thinking that they're good, but, you know, we know they're not. 
They await our coming, my lady, Sir Willis Manderly said, as my lord father swore they would. Let us not keep them waiting any longer, sir, the blackfish, my namesake replies. They put their spurs into their horses, and they're off to the castle. Behind them, 1,500 Manderly soldiers, knights, armored lances, swordsmen, free riders, spears, pikes, and tridents follow. And what of Lord Manderly? Him of the future, the North remembers fame. Well, he stayed behind at White Harbor. He's too old and fat to make this journey and fight in this war. So instead, he sent his two, quote-unquote, boys to escort Catelyn to Moat Caelan. Catelyn notes that Willis and Wendell were older than she was, and they were only a hair less obese than their father. They had walrus mustaches, balding heads, big bellies, and clothing that always seemed to have food stains on them. But they had differences, too. Willis was quiet while Wendell was loud. And Catelyn, well, she liked them. They'd gotten her to Rob, after all. As Catelyn and company approach Moat Caelan, Catelyn takes pride in the fact that Rob has set scouts to the east. While the Lannisters would probably come from the south, it was good that Rob was taking precautions and being careful. My son. My son is leading a host to war, she thought, still only half believing it. A year ago he had been a boy, and now? Now he was a man going to war. Outriders spot the Manderly banners, and they bring the Manderly army to dry high ground outside of Moat Caitlin to set up camp, while Sir Wendell escorts Catelyn and Brendan towards the castle itself. As Catelyn comes closer to Moat Caelan, Catelyn sees the markings of an army at the site, food and smoky fires and Lord Hornwood's orange battle tent. And through the mist, she sees the ruins of what remains of Moat Caelan. Black basalt's blocks were scattered and sinking into the mud. The wooden keep had evaporated into history, but though much was broken and gone, there remained the three towers of the great stronghold of the First Men, whereas originally there had been twenty great towers. Catelyn looks up at the gatehouse tower and notes that it's strong, with even a bit of wall running off its flanks. Over at the Drunkard's Tower, where the walls had come together over a bog, the tower leaning against it as if Catelyn, in her kind of wonderful parlance, thinks it's like a man about to spew a bellyful of wine into the gutter. And finally, the Children's Tower, where legends say, and it's, <laughs> it's just a legend, guys, right? <laughs> oh my god. The children of the forest call down their god to bring the hammer down onto the waters. It looked as if some great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations along the tower top and spit the rubble across the bog. Sir Brendan Tully looks at the ruins and begins to say something negative about the castle before Catelyn stops him. This castle ain't where it appears. It's a death trap, Ned had told her. The towers have a view of the entire causeway leading north, and armies can't move through the bogs. They have quicksand and snakes in them. Any armor would have to wade through waist-deep black mud, climb walls while exposed to arrow fire. Oh, and also there's ghosts that walk through the castle at night, looking to drink southern blood. Death trap? Yes, sir. Catelyn espies the banners at each of the towers. Carstarks at the Drunkard's Tower. Umbers at the Children's Tower. And the Gatehouse Tower? Well, there flies the direwolf of House Stark. She makes her way towards that tower, enters, and finds Rob among the lords in council. A pile of maps and papers scattered in front of him. At first, Rob doesn't notice Catelyn. But Greywind catches her sight, and the lords grow silent around Rob. And then Rob sees her. Mother, he says, his voice thick with emotion. And though Catelyn just wants to run up and grab him, she can't. She knows that if she takes on the mother's role, she'll shame her son in front of his lords. And her son must never look weak or vulnerable in front of his lord's bannerman. So Catelyn stays to the side of the room, away from him. But when Ghost comes over, Catelyn can't help but comment on Rob's appearance. You've grown a beard. I like it. It makes you look like my brother Edmure. Rob rubs his jaw all awkward, and ah, uh, yes, I know the feeling, Rob. I was also once in college, and my mother used to comment on my appearance when I used to come home during spring break, during the winter break, and all that sort of stuff. So I know you're feeling, Rob. I know that pain. 
Well, one by one, the Northern Lord's bannermen come to greet Catelyn. Theon is the last one to greet her. He saunters over like a Lord of the Rings role player, saying that he hadn't expected to see her here. I had not thought to be here, Catelyn replies. She'd come by way of White Harbor and learned from Wyman Manderley that Rob had called the banners. She's brought the Manderley host on over along with Wyman's sons and Sir Brendan Tully. The Blackfish. Thank you for joining us, sir, Rob says. We need men of your courage. And thus begins my favorite relationship, Sir Brendan Tully and King, well, at this point he's not quite a king, but King Rob Stark's brotherhood on the battlefield. But wait, where's Sir Roderick Cassell? He's on up to Winterfell where he'll be safe and sound from the war, right, Emmett? Right? Absolutely. He lives to this day, a proud old man to whom nothing terrible happened. Ramsay did in no way cut off his hand and then his head. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I really needed that this, this, this evening. I was already sad enough about this chapter. Thanks, dude. I'm a cheerful, optimistic fellow, Jeff. You know this about me. I do know that about you. I do know that indeed. The great John Umber puts in that they'll beat the piss out of the Lannisters and free Ned. But then Roose Bolton has a question. It is said that you, old Lord Tywin's dwarf son, is captive. Have you brought him to us? I vow we should make good use of such a hostage. You like my Roose voice? I like my Roose voice. Uh, not, not as good as Eliana's from Girls Gone Canon, but I think it's it, it's okay. All I can say is daddy. Go on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And of course, Roos says this in that creepy small voice that I just attempted. Catelyn has to admit that she doesn't hold Tyrion prisoner anymore. Her fool of a sister had made sure that he was no longer their prisoner. Catelyn kind of realizes that she shouldn't be speaking with such contempt about her sister, but she's pretty fucking pissed at Lysa. Catelyn had offered to foster sweet Robin at Winterfell, but Lysa had gone into a rage and threatened to toss Catelyn out of the moon door if she tried to take her son from her. Oh, Lysa. And after that, there hadn't been any more words between the sisters. When the Lord's pressed her for information, Catelyn demurs and asks to speak with Rob alone. And yes, that means you, Theon. Scoot your future traitor's ass on out of the room. Thanks. Bye. Get the fuck out of here. Alone now with Rob, Catelyn comments on his beard again, comparing Rob growing a beard at 15 to Edmure growing a beard at 16. But again, Rob is 15, and he's leading a host to battle. Catelyn is kind of scared. There was no one else, Rob says, all Ned-like. No one? Well, well, hell, Rob. There's Bruce Bolton, Rickard Carstark, Galbert and Robert Glover, Great John Umber, Helmut Tallhart. Any of one of them would have marched for you. Shit, even fucking Theon would have gone if you had ordered him. They're not Starks, Rob says. They are men, Catelyn replies. And then Catelyn sees anger in Rob's eyes, but it quickly melts. Rob knows he's just a kid. Are you sending you back to Winterfell, he asks Catelyn. Let us all pause for a second and go, aww. Rob's just a little wooby wooby kid. Okay, no more emotions. See, Jeff, you're such a hedgehog. I'll spike you on the outside when we flip you over. There's a soft little belly underneath. Just don't tickle my belly, man. That's all I ask. If you flip me, I cannot in good me. faith make that promise. <laughs> Fair enough. Catelyn says that she should send Rob back, but she can't now. Cat's out of the bag. Get it? Uh, and now, Rob, you have to lead. If you turn around now, these men will never respect you, and you need them to respect you, even fear you. She wants to keep Rob safe, but she can't do that now. He has to see this thing through. Rob thanks Catelyn, all relieved at not being sent home. But then Catelyn talks about Rob as a baby and he gets uncomfortable again. Like, come on, mom, stop, stop doing that. So Rob shifts, shifts the topic to Ned. Has, has Catelyn heard about him? Yes, she has. Wyman told her at White Harbor. Rob proceeds to show Catelyn the letter from Sansa slash Cersei, and Catelyn immediately knows that there's a threat implicit in the letter. There's also no mention of Arya. Rob winces, talking about how he had hoped that he could trade Tyrion for Sansa, but that's all gone now. 
Also, Mom, what's up with the veil? Are they going to come help? How many men will they send? Only one. The best of them. My uncle. But Brendan Blackfish was a tully first. My sister is not about to stir beyond her bloody gate. Rob is flummoxed. What's he going to do? Sure, he's got an 18,000-man strong army, but he has no idea of how to lead these men. What are you so afraid of, Rob? Catelyn asks. Well, Rob is afraid that even if they win, the Lannisters will murder Sansa and Ned. Won't they? Maybe. Maybe not, Catelyn replies. But you can't... But Rob, you can't go to King's Landing to swear fealty to those bastards. You're going to lose the respect of your lords if you do so. Our best hope, our only hope, is that you can defeat the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer captive, why then, a trade might very well be possible. But that's not all, Rob. As long as you're out here doing God's work in the field, Ned and Sansa will likely be safe. The Lannisters will be forced to make peace, especially if you're victorious on the battlefield. And if the fighting goes badly? Rob, I will not soften the truth for you. If you lose, there is no hope for any of us. They say there is naught but stone at the heart of Casterly Rock. Remember, remember the fate of Rhaegar's children. Catelyn sees that Rob is kind of scared, but there's something else there too. Strength. Then I will not lose, Rob says. Good on you, kid. And you know what, Rob? That's exactly what you're going to do. Never lose a battle. As for the war, though, we'll get to that when we get to it. He doesn't lose. Tywin cheats. I, okay, I'll, I'll wait. I no, wait. We, 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 have, we have 400 plus episodes left to go. We can just continue emphasizing this point that Tywin cheats and in order to win, and he doesn't end up winning in the end. So fuck you, Tywin, from both Emma and I. We're getting to Tywin next week. I just got to keep, keep the pot on simmer. Just got to keep the lid on. Uh, yeah, but next week is just going to blow open, my friend. It's going to blow open. Catelyn asks Rob to recount what's going on in the Riverlands, and the situation is not good. Jamie's crushed the Lords Vance and Piper at the Golden Tooth, killing Lord Vance. Lord Piper was falling back to River Run, but Tywin was leading yet another Lancer army up from the south. Ned had sent out some southern lords, Eric or Derek, or is that their name? I don't know, or something. But those men had been ambushed at the Mummers Ford, and a lot of them had been killed. No one knows what's going to happen to good Lord Derek in the meantime, but the King's Road was closed to the south. Tywin's heading towards Harrenhal, doing his usual shittery and burning out the peasants as he marches north because he's a fucking asshole and I hate him and he should die. And he will. Catelyn thinks that this is really, really bad news, so she asks Rob if he hopes Tywin comes all the way up to Moat Kaelin. Perhaps. Rob ordered Halen motherfucking Reed to hold the neck for a time, but he and his lords Bannerman think that Tywin won't approach Moat Kaelin. Instead, they'll march to the Trident. The Northmen will need to meet the Lannister army coming south. Well, that chills the fuck out of Catelyn's heart. She doesn't think it's wise to march on Tywin or Jaime. They're both seasoned battle commanders. And, you know, Catelyn, as much as you are absolutely right in almost everything you ever do, they're not quite seasoned battle commanders. That's okay, Catelyn. The reputation precedes itself, and it's not the reality, as we're going to find out momentarily here in a few weeks. Catelyn urges Rob to hold out here, but Rob ain't about holding out at Moat Catelyn. They can't live off this land. They need to march. Catelyn knows that these are the words of his lord's bannerman, but she knows that his that Rob's lord's bannerman aren't exactly wrong. The army that Rob has isn't really a professional army that you'd find in the Free Cities. It's mostly small folk. And sure, they'd march, but they couldn't sustain a long-term campaign. They would have to get home to the fields and lakes and forests to bring in the harvest, and that is absolutely what's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen at all, because all these men are going to die. So where is Rob going to march to then? Well, the Great John is all about marching on Tywin himself with a surprise attack, but the Karstarks and Glovers are more of a mind to join up with the Riverlanders and take on Jaime Lannister. But they have to hope River Run can hold out from Jaime's siege, so Rob is a little uncertain as to what to do. 
be certain, or go home and take up that wooden sword again. You cannot afford to seem indecisive in front of men like Bruce Bold and Rickard Karstark. Make no mistake, Rob. These men are your bannermen, not your friends. You named yourself Battle Commander. Command! Hell yeah, Catelyn. Rob is shocked at Catelyn's words, but he agrees. So Catelyn urges him to relook his options and command the shit out of this war. So Rob talks it out. He thinks that both plans are fine and all, but the best plan is probably to go for Jaime. The Kingslayer has fewer men in the field, and a surprise attack against Jaime might catch him and his army unawares. But Tywin, with his larger army, might not be so easily surprised. Catelyn says, yeah, nice call, Rob. Tell me more. Well, Rob will leave a small force to hold Moe Kalen and then march down the rest of the deck, split his forces at the Twins. Then Tywin will come north as Rob dispatches one army towards River Run and have a second army moving along the west bank of the Trident. And if Tywin comes north, he'll have a whole river between him and Jaime. Rob will just need to get through the Twins and Walter Frey, and this plan will go well. Walter Frey is Hostertelli's bannerman, right? Yeah, about that. Walter Frey is... How to put this delicately? Hmm, how to do this? Oh, yeah. He's a motherfucking piece of shit. Hostertelli never trusted him, and neither should Rob. Okay, Rob says he won't trust Walter. Oh, boy. Cue the start of a red wedding foreshadowing. Well, Catelyn is impressed with Rob, thinking that he looks like a Tully, yet he's thinking like Ned. So, Rob, which army are you going to command? Why, he's going to go with the cavalry against Jamie Lannister. And who's going south to confront Tywin? Ah, yes, the great John will go south. He wants to kick some Tywin ass, take some names, and write a story with Lannister blood. Ooh, yeah, about that. Maybe great John's isn't the best pick here. Sure, he's fearless, but that's a bit different from being brave. Rob needs to put someone with cold cunning in charge of the battle against Tywin. How about Bruce Bolton? Bruce Bolton, Rob said it once. That man scares me. Well, Catelyn says, let's hope he scares the shit out of Tywin too, Rob. But enough about war planning. We got to get you home, Catelyn. Back to Winterfell, right? Right? Oh my god, wrong. I am not going back to Winterfell, she herself say, surprised at the sudden rush of tears that blurred her vision. My father may be dying behind the walls of River Run. My brother is surrounded by foes. I must go to them. And that is a Game of Thrones Catelyn 8. At last, Emmett, at last. We are getting into some war shit. I mean, I can't believe I get to do the war shit with you, my friend. I am super fucking honored. And this chapter, I got a bit. So I know you're going to talk all about the architecture of Kalen, all those emotional nonsense between Rob and Catelyn, all that sort of stuff. But we are going to talk about the war shit, right? We got to do all the war shit that we can possibly do in this chapter. Did I mention in another life I might have worked as an operational planning cell for an information operations warfare? Um, yeah, the less said, the less bored. Anyways, I, I actually really, really love this chapter a lot. What'd you think, man? So I know we've been saying this about a lot of POVs lately, but it does feel like forever since we had a Catelyn chapter. Martin had to ramp up the plot in King's Landing and chose the reaction in Winterfell before bringing Cat back in, because here she takes over for Bran as our POV on Rob's campaign. She'll play that role for the rest of this book and at the beginning of the next one, heading south as he heads west for most of A Clash of Kings before resuming that role in A Storm of Swords. And as with Bran 6, this is a very rich chapter for the political and military side of things as Rob develops his strategy to take on the Lannisters and Catelyn advises him. But what really makes this chapter special for me is that it cements the relationship between Catelyn and Rob, which is one of my favorites in the series. Number one relationship in A Song of Ice and Fire for me is between Stannis and Jon. Mm -hmm. Close number two is Stannis and Davos. And this is probably number three. Favorite relationship non-Stannis <laughs> category. Yeah, that's it really is a really good, cool relationship that they have because... 
I find it to be a very realistic mother and son relationship and kind of a son that's in a coming of age phase of his life. I mean, he's 15. He's almost a man grown, as he's going to say, um, I believe, in the next Catlin chapter. And this relationship is going to be the foundation for a lot of the emotion as well as some of the action that we're going to see progressing forward from this chapter. So here we're having Catlin reunite with Rob after she's been gone since, what, Catlin 2 or Catlin 3, rather, was the last time that she had seen Rob. It's been five chapters you know, if we're saying that Catelyn 3 may have occurred around the time that Benjamin Stark went missing, they, these two haven't seen each other in five, six, perhaps even seven or eight months. So the fact that they are able to get back together and then reestablish themselves very, very quickly in a way that's uh, very uh, glorious, beautiful, and um, really kind of emotional and meaningful is is a good uh, is good writing on Martin's part, but it's also a way that kind of anchors the rest of the Stark storyline, especially as it relates to events that are occurring south of the Neck. It's a very complex relationship. It's sweet, but it's fraught with a lot of tension, and it feels very real. My my mother recommended The Song of Ice and Fire to me, and one of the things she said is that this relationship between Robin and Catelyn reminded her a lot of her relationship with me, so that really? kind of drew my attention to it. And that sounds sweet until you remember that at this point she had just read The Red Wedding. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So she knows how that relationship ends, and yet she said this. So that, that's my mother in a nutshell, a mix of sentimental and oddly terrifying. You know, it, it's it's cool, though, because, I mean, like, um, Catelyn is very real, I think, in this chapter. I mean, like, there's so much uh, of this balance between pride and fear, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit here. But that seems very realistic in terms of the way that a parental figure would feel about her son embarking on a very dangerous campaign, but a righteous one at the same time. I mean, I think what Catelyn is feeling is the kind of, she's essentially the embodiment of the of the reader, right? She's embodying the reader's feelings as if you're going through this book for the first time, which of course we're not. But if you're going through this book for the first time, she embodies a, what readers are experiencing with Rob's campaign. We wanted to succeed. We're kind of prideful that he's raised the, ba- that he's called the banners and he's bringing his army south to take on the hated villains of the story. That is the Lannisters at this juncture in the story. But at the same time, we're a little bit fearful, too, because things aren't really going all that great for, for cause Stark, so to speak. You've got the River Lords who are being – who Jamie is beating the piss out of. You've got Tywin Lannister marching north. You've got Sansa and Ned as captives in King's Landing and Arya who has disappeared. I mean, she won't – we won't see Arya again until her final a Game of Thrones chapter where she witnesses Ned Stark's execution. But as first-time readers, we don't know the status of a lot of these characters in, in, on Team Stark. So I think like Catelyn really does a good job of showing of, of embodying a lot of the same emotions that readers have when they're reading about Rob Stark's campaign and also taking uh, taking a sense of what's going on throughout uh, throughout throughout the narrative in terms of the Starks. And what really links the emotional stuff that I'm keying in on and the military stuff that you're keying in on is this sense of being on the precipice between between hope and fear. Right. Because Catelyn's hope and hopes and fears for her son as he enters manhood are mirrored in the possibilities and pitfalls of what they're dealing with in the larger plot. And you can see that at the very beginning of the chapter in which we're introduced to the Manderleys, mm-hmm. who are among the most powerful and significant lesser houses in Westeros. The most powerful and significant would probably be the Hightowers yes. or the Red Wines. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're both tucked away in their little southeast corner, southwest corner, rather, of Westeros. In, in all the rest of the continent, among all the lesser houses, the Manderleys, I would argue, are the most powerful. And they're going to turn out to be really significant and full of drama when we get to them in A Dance with Dragons. At this point, they feel almost like cartoon characters, like the way Wyllis and Wendell Manderley are described with their bald heads and ostentatious walrus mustaches. They remind me of, like, the, the bumbling detectives that show up in Tintin, or just, like, just classic buffoon characters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at this point, we know that they run a city, White Harbor, 
We know that Ned wanted to see to its defenses, so it's significant. We know that the other Northerners were waiting on them. So this is a sign of Northern power at work. Again, you have this powerful house being called to, called to banners for the Starks, but... On the other hand, of course, we also learn that Catelyn has been thoroughly spurned by Lysa, mm -hmm. that the Knights of the Vale are not coming outside of one, the Blackfish, and Rob takes that hard, as he should, because the loss of the Knights of the Vale as part of his coalition has a huge impact on his story going forward. At any point, that army could have made a massive difference for him or Stannis if they had come forward. So, as we said with Bran Six, the Starks are caught between power and destruction here, between desperate hope and rising fear, and Catelyn herself is lurching between these poles in terms of her personal relationship to Rob. We're getting more and more men, but is it enough? Rob has learned so much from Ned, but will it be enough? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question that Rob is confronting here about whether he has enough men to actually win and fight actually fight and win this war. I, I want to circle back to something you said about the uh the Manderleys being these kind of like bumbling detectives. To me, they're very much remind me of the bumbling detective who actually has a really good head on his shoulders, a sort of Columbo type figure if you want to go with that. And that they're really uh, they, they, they appear to be weaklings and obese and stupid, but when you get down right down to it, they're actually some of the most intelligent power and political players in the North. And they also are bringing a lot of swords to the fore in, at this juncture in the story, but also when we get to A Dance with Dragons with Wyman Manderley's conversation with Davos, where he tells Davos that he can bring that House, House Manderley, despite all the losses from the War of the Five Kings, still has the highest concentration of heavy horse in the North. And he could bring those horsemen on behalf onto Stannis' side and help bring victory potentially for for Stannis by utilizing that military force. They're also an economic base and power in White Harbor. I enjoy the little detail that they have all these stains all over their their uh, their doublets, so to speak, um, that they can't seemingly eat without spilling food all over themselves. I think it's a really fun detail. But you know, these guys are bringing a pretty large army to the fore for Rob. Now the problem is is that it's fifteen hundred men as opposed to the potential thirty thousand men. That could that Lysa could bring from the Vale, but Lysa, because she's operating under the auspices of Littlefinger, is not going to deploy her army, as you said so wonderfully back in, I want to say the Catelyn Five episode we did back in August. Uh, it's basically a thirty thousand man strong bodyguard for one person, Sweet Robin, and they're not going to fight despite people like Bronzion Royce wanting to come to the aid of Rob Stark, and that has a significant impact because when you look at Robert's Rebellion, one of the reasons why Robert's Rebellion was victorious and was uh, successful was because you had the armies from the north, the Vale, the Riverlands, and the Stormlands all, and eventually the Westerlands as well, all working to bring down Aerys II. Now you're only bringing two of seven kingdoms to the fore, and will that be enough to secure victory for Robin's allies? Well, it's not as if he's being introduced here in the context of a ruined fortress or anything. <laughs> that leads us to our setting for the chapter, Moat Kaelin, which is a really distinctive setting that I like a lot. And Martin lingers a long time on the world building here in this chapter. As I was saying to you in pre-production, I think it is a little force that the Blackfish, one of the finest military minds of his generation, yeah. doesn't know how Moat Kaelin works, has never learned or couldn't intuit just by looking at it. Like it's, you know, if I imagine Stannis or Randall Tarley turning up at Moat Kaelin, some of the other great military minds in Westeros, I imagine they'd figure it out pretty quickly. Yep. But, uh, you know, it's it's for exposition. you got to have a fish-out-of-water character there, someone like the Blackfish from the South, that he can be explained how Moat Kaelin works, that the audience learns how Moat Kaelin works. And Moat Kaelin is a really interesting strategic location. Obviously, I'm a neophyte in military matters compared to you, and I'm going to turn that over to you uh, in a bit to talk about uh, how Rob's working his strategy here, but... The moat provides a take on military strength different from the overwhelming presence of something like the wall or Casterly Rock. Agreed. Like, that's that's not how it works. Its strengths are environmental, and there are cunning powers beneath its seeming weakness. And 
it, it, it fits the image of a north as a distinct territory that, like Dorne and its endless desert sands that swallowed up so many armies, once you traverse into the north, you're on different territory. It feels like you don't belong here. The same way Stannis' knights feel like they don't belong on that march through the Wolfswood in a dance with dragons. You, I think you can see Martin setting up the newly independent north by spending so much time in introducing us to the fortress that made the old one possible. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at the history, too, of the north, you see that Moat Kaelin was absolutely instrumental in ensuring the continued independence of the Northmen from the invasion by the Andals. It's really only the introduction of the Targaryens and their dragons that essentially makes Moat Kaelin not as powerful of a, of a defensive structure as, as, it, as it is at this point in the story. You know, dragons can fly over castles, can fly over bogs, can fly over uh, all the snakes and alligators that are apparently <laughs> there in the um, outside of Moat Kaelin itself. But yeah, I think it's really, really good as a defensive structure and I think it's really, and I, and I really like the point that Catelyn emphasizes of how deceptive it looks because there's only three towers standing there. But it's not about walls. It's it's not about defensive structures, the man-made defensive structures. It's about what they overlook. And they're overlooking this really inhospitable land to march north. And it really kind of, to me, it sets a kind of thematic idea about the north being separated out from the rest of Westeros, that nature essentially separates the north from the south, so to speak. It's not the it's Moat Kalen is great and all because you can put archers up there, fire arrows, do all that sort of stuff, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. Uh, to your heart's delight for those of you who are interested in the military stuff. But it's that the north, like almost like the gods themselves, the old gods have set a boundary between the north and south, and they've done it using nature. And I think it's a really cool point that Martin, Martin emphasizes here in this chapter in Catelyn's descriptions of Moat Kalen to Brendan Tully. That's an excellent point. It does feel like the north itself is infer- enforcing this border, and what man builds on it is kind of weak by comparison yeah. and just exploiting what the old gods and what the children of the forest had done and that the moat is a ruin speaks to the transitory nature of all these kingdoms it reminds me of Christopher's tomb how Catelyn herself will describe that in A Storm of Swords right. and the Whispering Wood on the way to the twins and her eventual grisly fate there and the, the sense of a fallen kingdom that you see with the, the independent kingdom of the Riverlands it reminds me also of the, the sorrows that we traverse in A Dance with Dragons with Tyrion and the, the remnants of the Roynar kingdom that was, and then you get the sense of, of a romantic, independent kingdom that was lost. Yeah. And it, that, ex- that extends to the magical realm. The children have vanished, the others are a myth, and so the moat is this testament to a magical world left behind. And hmm. it, does, it does suggest at some level that Rob's kingdom, too, is soon going to be a haunted ruin, that he's, he's setting up his camp and his banners in these ruined castles to suggest that he's going to join the ghosts pretty soon. I think it's also another point that to kind of reinforce your point that when the Ironborn take Moat Kaelin, like like nature just like throws them for a fucking loop. I mean, they're all like wounded in battle against the reeds. They're all like dying of sickness and disease. You know, one of the things to talk about in, in Reek's chapters from A Dance with Dragons is we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast is how like all of the basement areas are flooded and everything like nature itself is rejecting the Ironborn from holding Moat Kaelin. And I think that's that's great on Martin's part that he that he emphasizes this and, and helps us to uh, understand the North as distinctive and understand the North distinctive just by its very nature itself. I mean, I think you make a great point that Dorne is distinctive by its 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 sand and uh, and its deserts. The North here is distinctive by it's got one way to get into it and one way out of it, unless you I guess use the sea, of course. But the if you're not a, a member of the north if you're not from the north looking south you're going to have a bad time trying to come through it and if you're a southern trying to come through up north you're going to get fucked and that's great but now moving on to the more emotional heart of the chapter we get the reunion between rob and catelyn i absolutely love how martin stages this it's such a perfect mm-hmm. contrast to what we saw in brand six 
In that chapter, Grey Wind, of course, tore off the Great John's figures. So he was embodying the aggressive side of House Stark. Hmm. The dire wolf on the banner is this slavering monster that's going to keep you in line. But here, though, we get this wonderful little moment where all the lords are talking with Rob and they're intent on the maps and the plans, and none of them look up to see here except Grey Wind. The great grey beast was lying near the fire, but when Catelyn entered, he lifted his head, and his golden eyes met hers. Mm. The lords fell silent one by one, and Rob looked up at the sudden quiet and saw her. Mother, he said, his voice thick with emotion. And later on, Grey Wind sniffs her hand, and when, when Catelyn's talking about how she likes Rob's beard, she's rubbing uh, Grey Wind's fur, so it's almost as if she's like, you know, rubbing or tickling Rob's beard, and <laughs> Grey Wind nips her fingers playfully. It's this really sweet moment, and suddenly Grey Wind represents something else entirely. Now he's the heart of House Stark, this... This beating connection. He is he is that which Rob cannot be in front of his bannermen. Hmm. That 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 emotional Rob the boy self he showed to Bran after Grey Wind attacked the Great John and Rob went to him shaking and confessing that he didn't really have control over that situation at all. Grey Wind was being a front for Rob in that scene, but now he's acting as Rob's emotional connection mm-hmm. so Rob can keep the Lord face on. Yeah, it's it that's exactly what's going on, and it's also really cool too, because we're seeing evidence that Rob is a war himself. So I'm not mistaken when 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 Catelyn reaches under and, and kind of scratches Grey Wind under his his jaw or snout, so to speak, that Rob himself kind of like reaches up and feels his beard, sort of thing. So maybe exactly, they... there's wonderful little subtle connections yeah. going on. That's why I love this scene. It does suggest that, uh, and I really kind of undersold it when I was doing my my synopsis because this is a, a great emotional scene that you see connection between Rob and Catelyn as seen through the wolf. And I think from a, from a first time reading perspective, you might not necessarily catch that, but as we're rereading it, so you're like, yeah, that's, it's exactly what George is doing here is that he's symbolizing Rob's emotional state through his dire wolf because Rob himself, can, Rob himself has to keep up a front much as he kept up his front, you know, back in brand six a little bit in terms of like being Rob the Lord, so to speak. When in fact, he was absolutely fucking terrified when the great John jumped to his feet and drew his sword. He here, he can't jump to his feet and go and embrace Catelyn, but he has a direwolf who can do that for him, and I think that's a really lovely, emotionally meaningful connection that George places between Rob and Catelyn, utilizing Grey Wind as that go-between between the two. Absolutely, as you say, within that love is that worry and fear. That's what's under the surface here, and it's crystallized in the question of Rob's age, which yeah. keeps coming up in the conversation, of course. Catelyn, as she says, is restraining her terror about what's happened to her husband and daughters down in the capital. She's like, I gotta put that to the back of my mind. Right. If I think about that, it's just gonna overwhelm me, which of course is all part of Martin's painstaking process of getting us to Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it says that eventually that, that door is going to open up no matter how apart she tries to keep it closed. It's going to all come rushing out and take over. But for right now, all she can express it as is this fear for Rob because as she'll say later on in her next chapter in this book, he's the one who's here. He's the one she can help and she has to preserve her strength for him. So she's caught between this pride at him stepping up and hope that he can save the day with this fear that he's too young and green and so won't be able to save the day. Right off the bat, she's pointing out how young he is. Edmure was 16 when he grew his first whiskers. Mm-hmm. I'll be 16 soon enough, Rob <laughs> said. And you are 15 now. 15 and leading a host to battle. Can you understand why I might fear Rob? And he falls back on, on Stark identity, the core of Northern politics. They are not Starks. But what makes it work and makes it more than just Rob being stubborn is that, like John, he's open to critique. When he says, I know, I'm just, I know, I know I'm a kid. I know this is a front. Are you sending me back to Winterfell? It's really honest and yeah. really intimate that like much as like Rob doesn't like being reminded he used to be a baby in Catelyn's arms, he's he's willing to let down his guard around his mother and he's not keeping her at arm's length like a lot of uh, young men his age might do. He's still a boy. He's only 15 years old. Imagine you being 15 years old and now you're leading 18,000 men into battle. Now, of course, historically, that is not unheard of for a, oh, a kid. Sure. 
um, to, to lead and actually win a number of battles. You've got a character like Baldwin IV, who was one of the Crusader state kings of Jerusalem, who defeated Saladin in battle at the age of 16. So again, it's not unheard of, but it is a bit rare as well. So Catelyn's fear that Rob is still a boy is not unfounded. And Rob does kind of show some boy elements here. I mean, I do love the point you make about how it's honest. How he says, are you are you sending me back to Winterfell? Like that is that is very realistic for being a 15 year old because he's still looking for and as many men will do their entire lives, he's still looking for the approval and affection of, of his mother. And fortunately for, for Rob, he's got a good mom in the form of Catelyn who does extend both emotional support as well as be honest with him, like be realistic with him too. Like he, she doesn't sugarcoat any of the stuff that's going on in Westeros right now and the potential threats and the potential dangers that he is up against, not just him, but his entire family as a whole. As you say, it's been a while since Rob and Catelyn have seen each other. And when I think when Rob sees Catelyn... It comes rushing in all at once yeah. what he's doing and how big of a risk this is and how big big of a change this is from his old life. And he's like, wow, I really was just playing with wooden swords a few months ago, wasn't I? She was here. That was when we last saw each other. That's what was going on. This betrays his own inner fear that he's not going to be able to step up. It's that vulnerability. Again, we saw flashes of in Bran's POV when the Lord face wasn't on. And so this is Rob the Lord giving way to Rob the boy. As we said in Brand 6, Rickon is kind of permanently in this mode right. of, of, of needing and yearning and not getting enough and feeling forever bereft and lost. And Rob is, is vacillating between these two poles. And that's all the more moving because it's in Catelyn's eyes because she's reflecting that conflict. You can see that in her recognizing that sending Rob home will damage his reputation permanently, but she's still thinking of him as her pure, sweet little baby. <laughs> you know, my, my absolute favorite moment in the chapter is this, when he's he's talking about his conflict about what to do and... He looked to her, his eyes shining. The proud young lord melted away in an instant, and quick as that, he was a child again. A 15-year-old boy looking to his mother for answers. It would not do. That's so good. And I love that. It would not do. The crux of this chapter is that Catelyn wants to be able to recede to childhood, innocence, Winterfell, the womb with Rob, but she can't. She knows it. Yeah. She knows she has to let him grow up. She knows she has to help him do it. And at chapter's end, she makes the decision to go with him as he does it, instead of retreating back to Winterfell and home and hearth and her younger children. In a way, she's kind of making the inverse journey she made after Robert's Rebellion. Yeah. At that time, she came north, a young woman with her infant son, and now she's coming south at Mokalen in middle age with her son on the cusp of adulthood. And now she knows about Mokalen, so she can explain it to her uncle. And when he says, oh, I have Southron blood, I bet the ghosts will get me. <laughs> Does that apply to her? I mean, look, Grey Wind, the symbol of how Stark came over and licked her hand. Is, is she a northerner in truth? And there's all, all these bittersweet emotions, I think, coming to the fore for Catelyn. That's some of the things I love about her chapter is the constant sense of the sweep of her life and how all her backstory and decisions and earlier emotions inform what's going on. I think that's such a rich literary trait in her chapters that I absolutely love. Yeah, it really is. And I, and I would say that she's more uh, North woman than, than Southern at this point. I mean, she's been North of Moat Kalen for most of her, or all of her adult life, to be honest. And the fact that Grey Wind accepts her is, is a wonderful touching moment that demonstrates her identity as a North woman and demonstrates her connection to the North. And I think it's really, really cool. It again, like speaks to that realistic nature of, of Catelyn in that she sees Rob like crying because he's a 15 year old kid leading 18,000 men into battle and he has no idea what to do. And he's looking for something from her. And what she offers him instead of simply 
a line about, oh, it's going to be okay, honey. Everything's going to be fine. She offers him kind of cold, hard truth as well as comfort. And I think that combination of those both mix Catelyn. And this will be a controversial statement for those ugly, stupid bads in the, in the fandom. But I think it makes Catelyn a, a pretty exceptional mother figure in A Song of Ice and Fire because we don't see a lot of that going on through many of the other mother characters. We don't see that from Cersei. We don't, I mean, we sort of see that from Elena Tyrell towards Mace, but we don't really ever see them interacting. We only kind of get Elena's take on Mace Tyrell. So I, I see a lot of bad parental figures in the story, but Catelyn is not a bad parental figure as much as the stupid, ugly bads are going to try and yell at, at my Twitter feed about saying that. But she's a good mother and she does a good job in both comforting Rob as well as offering him the reality of what he's facing and the odds that he's facing in this kind of really uphill struggle to take on the Lannisters. I think Olena and Marjorie might be the comparison for what's okay. going between Catelyn and Rob, yeah. more than Olena and Mace. That's, it's someone trying to bring along their prodigy. It's, it's, there's, and we see this also with the Blackfish, a kind of coach relationship going on with Rob as the, as the star athlete of, of your team. And there's a lot sure. of potential that has to be kind of shaped yeah, yeah. And, has to, and has to be brought along in a way that he can feel confident in making his own decisions. And Catelyn does that. She lays out all these chances and consequences for him and helps him embrace adulthood, helps him embrace his own ability to affect the situation. She doesn't sugarcoat the situation, but she reminds him, you can do things about this. You have choices. Yeah. You're not hopeless. You're in trouble. We might all die, <laughs> but you can change this situation. And as the discussion continues, she, she tells him he has to be certain about doing this, and this is a key line, or go home and take up that wooden sword again. Mm. Because, again, she would love him to be able to do that. She says that at the end of this book. I want to write an end to this. I want you to put down that sword and go home, have children, and have this a sweet life at Winterfell that I had with your father. She wants him to be able to do that, but she knows that she can't let him, and she has to she has to pull him away from that and pull herself away from that. And it makes me think of Arya snapping her wooden sword across her legs at the end of her Clash of Kings arc and thinking, I'm a direwolf and done with wooden teeth. Hmm. There's a triumph in that, but there's also a real sadness that the, the childhood that was so brutally interrupted... She's now willingly leaving it behind. And, you know, it, it struck me while rereading this that Catelyn, well, certainly a, a, a horrible parental figure while, while John is concerned. She is, is so different from Tywin, as we'll see in the next chapter, and how he treats Tyrion. Oh, yeah. And even more so, I think this is a deliberate contrast to how Lysa has handled Sweet Robin. Like how Lysa has completely sheltered Sweet Robin from the world and has prepared him for nothing. Now, it's not entirely Lysa's fault that she feels this way right. and acts this way. There's a whole lot of trauma and I think mental illness at this point that goes into what Lice is doing. Of course. But just just making the point, I think Martin is setting up the contrast in terms of how Catelyn is ushering her son across the threshold to adulthood. And at chapter's end, she makes this leap herself where she she finally gives away all the emotions she's been holding back. You know, in the way this whole chapter is about holding back tears. And at the end, Catelyn finally cries. Mm -hmm. she, 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 she's done staying strong and presenting this image as we've been talking about. So when I think of Catelyn 8, I think of those moist eyes. You know, Rob's eyes shining with youth as he his, begs her to tell him what to do. And then at the very end, Catelyn's eyes blurring with these these weary tears of adulthood. It's That's so good. It's it's a very emotional chapter. So now that I've, you know, done my Rhaegar <laughs> harp strings business here to try to make everyone sniffle, let's let's turn ourselves over to the cold hard strategy, shall we? Oh, yeah, baby. You know what No, I'm I'm kidding. I I, I do think as much as I as much as I love the battle strategy, the tactics that, that are used, comparing it to real life tactics and strategy, I do think that and this just goes for everything we've been doing in this reread. What I'm finding in this reread more than anything else is that I'm gravitating more towards those emotional moments, towards that character stuff. Like, I, I feel like like the plot for me is pretty – I mean, I, I, I could probably recite the plot of any POV character 
at least some of like the benchmarks that we hit along the way towards their endpoint in the Dance of Dragons, or in the case of Catelyn before that, in the Storm of Swords before she becomes Stoneheart. And that's all well and good, but I think in this reread, and being helped by you, of course, sir, is that I'm seeing a lot of the character and a lot of the emotions that are going into the creation of these stories. Like, plot points are bones, essentially, to me. They're bones in a body that you can kind of, they kind of anchor the structure of the story. But it's really like the flesh, the muscle, the blood, all of the things that make up, that go beyond the bones, that really make this a fully fleshed out, haha story and a fully fleshed out story that has kind of grips me still grips me still after how god knows how many rereads at this point so i think like this this reread that i'm doing with you is really helpful because i'm seeing a lot of the character sides that is that george is working here and i think the mother-son relationship between, between catlin and rob is so 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 essential to augmenting all of the plot points yes it's the whispering the battle of the whispering wood is amazing the battle of the green fork so cool but they wouldn't mean shit unless you had unless you cared and I think as readers, George wants us to care about Rob and Catelyn's fate. And as we're going to talk about in the next Tyrion chapter, at some level, George wants us to care about Tyrion's fate. Though not Tywin, because fuck that guy, for real. And as you say, we're rereading, so we're coming back to this knowing how it turns out. We come back to this knowing about the Red Wedding, which inherently colors our viewing of this relationship and every strategic move they're taking. So there's this aura of kind of dread and helplessness and not being able to reach into the page and save them right that just adds real pathos and gravitas to their relationship you see that with ned as we've talked about before and how he's moving towards his doom but you can't see it but we can yeah you know the the way we set up stannis and davos's relationship in the clash of kings but really pay it off in a storm of swords oh, yeah. i think you start seeing these layers all the more richly when you come back with knowledge of what's coming absolutely but to kind of move a little bit beyond those emotions and get to that battle shit and that war shit that i love so much and uh, kind of where I made my bones, so to speak, in terms of um, doing some writing. At this point now, it's like six, almost seven years, six, seven years ago, when I was first finished A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, one of the first essays I ever wrote in A Song of Ice and Fire was a complete analysis of Rob Stark as a military commander back in 2013, I want to say. So we are a classic, oh, a classic of the genre. I wouldn't say it's a classic. I, 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 I sometimes I, I don't know about you, man, but sometimes when I go back and read some of the stuff I wrote five, six, seven years ago, I'm like. I missed a lot of really good shit that I should have put in there. And I'm like, maybe I'll just revisit and, re and rewrite that essay. But no, that's six years over the fact. So here's my attempt to kind of rectify some of my mistakes I made back in the day, if you want to go and read that old essay and um, sort of things. So battle plans. So it's time for me to kind of let my inner war nerd have its day. Um, and I guess you're going to have to skip about, you know, four hours ahead to the end of this podcast if you don't want to get your war shit on because, dude, I'm riding dirty on this one. I would expect nothing less of you, sir. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, and to kind of best analyze what it kind of anchors the end of this chapter. So the last third of this chapter is primarily comprised of Rob Stark explaining the situation to Cat, the military situation to Catelyn, and kind of his formation of his battle plans. And so I've elected to utilize what's known as the military decision-making process, or MDMP, which probably the half dozen or so of you who have had experience in battle staff in the actual United States military or some other militaries might have some um, memory of or, or some relationship to. And this is really hoping to simplify some of what Rob is working with here and some of his planning. And, and I, I should say up, up front that I'm not doing this because I think that George R. R. Martin pulled out a United States Army military manual and decided that he was going to structure Rob this way. It's more of a, a way to capture some of the main points that Rob is talking about in a way that's more easily understandable. So 
the first step of, of MDMP is receipt of the mission. And very simply, Rob's mission at this point is to win against the Lannisters and take Jamie and or Tywin prisoner. And Catelyn says this by saying, our best hope, our only true hope is that you can defeat the foe in the field. If you should chance to take Lord Tywin or the Kingslayer captive, why then a trade might very well be possible. When I came back and reread this, I'd forgotten that the original intent was always to take Jamie or Tywin prisoner. I, in my memory, I'd always thought that the taking of Jamie was kind of a, a byproduct of Rob's attempt to defeat the Lancers in the field. That's actually the main objective here. So that's, that's important to keep in mind of. And also, if Rob wins against the Lancers, he's going to demonstrate his prowess to his Lord's Bannerman. And if he takes Jamie or, or Tywin captive, he can trade them for Ned and Sansa. The second part of MDMP is mission analysis. And we know, as Rob is talking, that his position is very, very tenuous. In terms of enemies in the field, he has two Lannister armies that are up against him and both outnumber him. Jamie's army is southwest of Moat Kaelin, besieging River Run. Tywin's army is directly south of him, marching north towards Harrenhal. And again, both these armies outnumber Rob's army of 18,000 Northmen, with Jamie's army being slightly smaller and Tywin's army being both larger and having higher and having higher numbers of heavy horse. But there's an advantage in that the Green Fork is separating both of the Lannister armies. So they do not have a united command structure, and then that gives Rob a bit of an advantage as he's considering his options. So Rob and Catelyn's understanding of what the Lancers are doing here is that they want to take River Run, they want to neutralize the Riverlands and the River Lords, and Rob correctly, this is really cool, he correctly identifies that Tywin's army is acting as bait to lure Rob away from the main attack, from the main Lancer objective, which is to take River Run. This gets a really nice confirmation in the next Tyrion chapter, which we're covering next week. So in terms of friendly forces, Rob has 18,000 men, as I talked about a few times. His main potential allies are the surviving river lords and the remnants of their hosts, which have fled back to River Run, and they are all under siege there. He's also heard about Beric and Darium's force in the Lannister rear, but they're pretty much scattered and rendered non-mission capable due to their sustained losses by Greater Clegane at the Mummer's Ford. So, Rob's army is now at Moat Kaelin, but it's not a standing field army, and that's kind of an important distinction to make. In, in Essos, they have actual professional armies like the Golden Company, some of the other sellsword companies that Daenerys is going to encounter in and around Marine and Yunkai and Astapor. And these armies are ones that are standing armies. That means that they are in consistent operation. Rob's army is, to use kind of a, an analogy, is mostly made up of reservists and National Guardsmen, so to speak, part-time soldiers. These are not people that are trained every single day for warfare, although you do have a few of them, especially among the noble classes in the north that do have a large amount of experience both in Robert's Rebellion as well as some of the other wars that have been fought in the years since Robert's Rebellion. So now we come to the third point, which is course of action development. And we have three major courses of action. Catelyn's plan, hold, Mo hold Moat Kaelin against the Lannister advance. Course of action two, which is Great John Umber's plan is to advance south and meet Tywin Lannister in battle, utilizing a surprise attack or flank flanking motion against Tywin's armory, army to attack them from the rear. The third course of action, which is Galbert Glover and Rickard Carstark's course of action, which is to march southwest to the Twins and then continue on to meet Jamie's army besieging River Run and relieve the siege of River Run and gather up the River Lords and incorporate them into the Northern Army. So, three courses of action, and some of the advantages are for the first course is that Mokalen is impenetrable, as we talked about at significant length, but it is a bit disadvantageous, disadvantageous in that Rob can't sustain his army there. And we also, and Rob has the ability and the possibility that the River Lords will be obliterated by the Lannister armies marching north, Tywin Lannister's army marching north, or Jamie Lannister's army besieging River Run. Course of action two is one which is to attack Tywin's larger army 
And you do have the advantages if you take Tywin Lannister prisoner in that he's going to be a very valuable prisoner to exchange for Sansa and Ned. But Tywin is a bit more canny of a commander. He has, again, a larger army, more heavy horse in the field. And also, what Rob doesn't know is we're going to find out in the next chapter that Tywin Lannister has dispatched um, Sir Adam Marbram up to up to up, up and around Moat Kaelin. So Adam Marbram is shadowing Rob's moves and reporting back to Tywin. So any movement march south on Tywin would have some advance warning. Plus, Rob notes that any flanking movement to Tywin's east would expose him to Jamie's army that could march down from River Run, and then Rob would have to meet two Lannister armies in the field badly outnumbered. Third course of action has the advantage that Jamie's army is smaller, so we're attacking River Run here, and Jamie is less experienced a commander than Tywin. However, marching towards River Run leaves Moat Kaelin vulnerable to Tywin's movement. Plus, Tywin could wheel his army back around to the south and force march along the west bank of, and then come back around to the um, back uh, up the Mummers Ford and march north to confront Rob Stark there. So, what's Rob to do? And I'm going to let Rob Stark do the talking here. Both plans have virtues, but look. If we try to swing around Lord Tywin's host, we take, we take the risk of being caught between him and the Kingslayer. And if we attack him, by reports, he has more men than I do, and a lot more armored horse. The Great Sean says that it won't matter if we catch him with his breeches down. But it seems to me that a man who has fought as many battles as Tywin Lannister won't be easily surprised. <laughs> About that. <laughs> About that. So, Rob here is correctly identifying the, the shortcomings and the advantages of each of these plans of action. So what's he end up doing? So our fifth thing is the course of action approval. So now that we have all the differing plans in place, what is Rob Stark's actually actual plan? Well, it's a mix of all three of the course of action that have already been discussed. And he says, I'd leave a small force here to hold Moat Kaelin, archers mostly, and march the rest down the causeway. But once we're below the neck, I'd split our host in two. The foot can continue down the King's Road while a horseman cross the Green Fork at the Twins. He pointed. When Lord Tywin gets word that we've come south, he'll march north to engage our main host, leaving our riders free to hurry down the west bank to River Run. And this is really, really smart. So what Rob is doing here, essentially, is he's using his slower, heavier infantry that is not going to be advanced so as quickly, using them essentially as bait, the same way that Tywin Lannister is using his army as bait to draw Rob Stark away from River Run. Now, Tywin, he wants, so Rob Stark wants Tywin to march north to confront his heavy foot, and what this does is that it puts Tywin at a disadvantage in that he cannot aid Jamie Lannister besieging River Run itself. So if Tywin Lannister is engaged against the, against the Northman foot while Rob Stark is, is moving his horse along the west bank of, of the Trident and heading towards Jamie, it's at a, that Tywin is at a significant disadvantage and he can't wheel his army around to go aid Jamie Lannister and Jamie will be caught likely unaware because, as we're going to find out here in a few chapters, Jamie is not going to do a good job of scouting out his main force. He's going to act arrogantly in the Siege of River Run and not have any scouting force out to do any reconnaissance on potential threats coming from the North itself. But who's going to command each element? As we talked about in the, in the synopsis, Rob is going to command the horse. He's going to go where the danger is the greatest. And that is a testament to Rob and kudos to Rob. Love, love you, boy. But who's going to command the foot? In Rob's estimation, he wants the Great John to command the infantry. But Catelyn advises Rob to give the command to someone more cunning more cold. Roose Bolton. And was this a mistake? We'll talk about that towards the end of this podcast. So that is a little bit of military analysis of what's going on with Rob Stark's army. I'll try to do something similar for the next 
chapter where we talk about the Lannister army itself. Hope you guys weren't too bored as I kind of monologued there. I apologize, Emmett. I know. I, I want to hear your sweet voice here in a second. And that will take us to Orders Production Dissemination Transition. And that is something we'll be covering in Catlin 10 where we get the fantastic Battle of the Whispering Wood. And then, of course, after that, the Battle of the Camps. Absolutely. Well done, sir. That's a great breakdown of exactly the information Rob is receiving and what he, he plans to make use of it, putting all his resources in the field to keep the Lannisters separate and, and lure Tywin out of position. And he really keys in on both Lannister men psychologically in a way that they utterly fail to do with him. Yes. As, as we'll see when we get to both Tywin and Jamie's actions a little later in the war. And as you say, his, his mission is very specifically not to destroy their armies in detail, Right. to take Tywin or Jaime captive. And that it just emphasizes, as we've said before, that war is politics by other means, just as politics is war by other means. <laughs> it demonstrates why that hostage system exists in the first place, which is to help end conflicts quickly. Right. If you, you know, someone takes your cousin, someone else takes your cousin, okay, guys, let's all calm down and trade <laughs> and go back to ripping off the peasants right, as exactly. the Lord's intended. We're going to see that somewhat break down over the course of this series for a number of reasons, including the execution of Ned Stark and Tyrion sending in uh, false envoys to River Run to try to free Jamie, but that is, as always, we say about Catelyn. She's a very particular woman of her time and place, who's keyed into how the systems are supposed to work, and so mm -hmm. she expresses that mindset. So that's what she's expressing here. This is how you end wars. This is how our class functions to try to stop this from spiraling completely out of control. Right. And um, something I find interesting in terms of that, in terms of the specifics of their mission and how it's outlined, is. That the Great John is going completely off script. <laughs> and as we've said before about the Great John and Brand 6, it's hard to tell what's just bluster and what is secretly extremely ambitious cunning. Yeah. Like he's talking about not only – you have this his strategy of taking the Battle of Tywin, but he wants to do more than that. What he says to Robin Catelyn is that we're going to go on to King's Landing <laughs> after that and directly free Ned. That is not what Catelyn is talking <laughs> about. She says take a hostage. We'll work out a trade. Great John is saying screw that. Let's just go there. Right. Let's just go there and get him, which is, is – Really interesting. I mean, it does fit the North Uberalis perspective he presents at Rob's Crowning, mm -hmm. given that this strategy would involve completely abandoning Edmure and the other Riverlords to Jamie's mercies. Right. But it's tough to say. What do you think? I mean, does, does the Great John have some kind of radical political realignment in mind at this point already, if not precisely King Rob of the North and Riverlands? Because the question becomes, if you, you know, zoom into King's Landing like Krigon Stark and take over, what do you do then? Yeah, I mean, so... Uh, the the question back to you, and this is more trivia, but who is the first person to declare Rob king in the north? Exactly. That would be the Great John, and ever after by Rob's side at that point. So, yeah, you think you really see the Great John pushing the agenda for the Starks to maybe take everything. Right. Which is, is, is wild that he's pushing for this at this point. I mean, I know, you know, we like the Great John generally. He's a positive guy, but <laughs> he's kind of, if that's true, he's kind of ruthless and ambitious in a way that kind of mirrors Roose Bolton, actually. Yeah, it really does. I mean, and... and I mean, I think about it just in terms of, of the tactics and, and the strategy involved in that, in that you have 18,000 dudes who could attack King's Landing. I mean, you have to first take out Tywin Lannister's army. Then you have to take King's Landing itself. Like, th these are, like, far out possibilities. These are not realistic um, – I mean, we could talk about it as, blu as blustering, but these are not realistic – ways that that rob can accomplish victory here at, at this point i mean maybe when rob is joins up with the river lords and maybe if the veil vale joins in too and you have like a 60 to seventy thousand man army you could take on king's landing but as it stands right now and even as it stands at the end of a game of thrones it's not a possible it's not a real possibility now that does bring up the question whether stannis's attempt to take king's landing in the clash of kings was possible and stannis almost makes it occur just with similar numbers i think he's got like 21 thousand soldiers i think is how how it's kind of delineated 
and he nearly, very nearly takes King's Landing if it wasn't for Tywin and the Tyrell showing up at the very end. At the same time, though, Stannis has an open road to King's Landing from the south. There's no Lannister army standing athwart him the way, the same way the Tywin Lannister's army is standing athwart the Northmen host at Moat Kaelin at this point. So, but I do think that George is setting the foundation for the Great John being the first man to declare Robb Stark as the King of the North. There stands the only man I mean to bend the knee to. There stands the King of the North. The King of the North, the King of the North, the King of the North. Like, this really does a great job of setting that foundation. And I think that's primarily the narrative purpose behind Great John's bluster. And that we're starting to see that these Northmen are like starting to be like, man, we're not getting a whole lot out of this deal with of, of bending the knee to King's Landing. There's no more dragons anymore. Uh, our the king himself has is eventually is, has taken our lord our, our lord Paramount hostage and has taken his daughter hostage as well. We're, what are we getting out of this bargain at this point? Like it seems to me like it's an attack on King's Landing and declare ourselves kings and declare ourselves independent from King's Landing. Yeah, it's, it's that theme of escalation we see throughout the build up to the War of Five Kings where some people are trying to hold back and some people are like, no, this is the time. Let's let's rev those engines and take everything we possibly can for better or worse. And I think, yeah, the comparison to Stannis and his, his calculations about King's Landing both early on in the Clash of Kings when he's like, can I really take it and hold it with only a few thousand men right. versus later with his host is, is definitely the, very much the same consideration. Speaking of <laughs> uh, Stannis and the whole Baratheon brother storyline in the Clash of Kings, taking us into foreshadowing and groundwork, Catelyn does start to play a similar role in the councils and campaign of Robb Stark as she does with Stannis and Renly in the Clash of Kings. Yeah, it's really cool because there is a line here where Catelyn is talking with Theon and Theon says, I had not expected to see you here. And Catelyn says, I had not thought to be here. And that's a really cool line because it, it jogged a memory in my mind about that. I was like, I think this happens again. And I looked it up and yes, it does happen again. It happens when Catelyn is present at the Stannis and Renly parlay. And Stannis is surprised that, Cat that Catelyn's present saying something like, Lady Stark, I had not expected to see you here. And she says again, I had not thought to be here. And I really like that line a lot because I think it speaks to Catelyn's constant fish out of water. Get it? Get it? Uh, I get it. Because uh, the Tully sigil. Uh, it's a trout. There we go. Look out. Look at me That's dropping, a fish. Dropping the fish puns. So, I mean, we see her throughout as the kind of fish out of water. She, she's like the party leader taking Tyrion up to the Vale, to the political counselor, to Rob Stark, to eventually the diplomat. Uh, figure to to Renly in A Clash of Kings. And I think it's really cool that George takes his characters, and especially Catelyn, on a journey of the unexpected. And so I think it's really, it's fun that that, gets, that line gets repeated, that she's occupying roles that are outside of what she ever anticipated occupying, but she's also occupying roles that go beyond her gender, right? I mean, she's a diplomat. She's a counselor to Rob. These are roles that are not typically occupied by women in a medievalish setting that George R. R. Martin has as envisioned for A Song of Ice and Fire. I think it's really cool that Catelyn kind of breaks those kind of gender roles and norms throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. And he, he does it in such a way that makes it believable, uh, compelling, and emotionally satisfying for me. I think a lot of it has to do with Catelyn being Hoster's oldest child and that Edmure didn't come along for a while. So Catelyn was kind of the heir, at least nominally, for right. a lot of her childhood. And Hoster clearly... She was clearly Hoster's favorite, and he spent a lot of time with her and brought her around the Riverlands. So she's used to this world, even if she's accepted a somewhat limited place in it. And yeah, I, I love that tragic sense with Catelyn that she feels she's never where she's supposed to be, that yeah. she's not with the children she needs to be, and that Bran and Rickon must think me a cold and unnatural mother, and she's not with them when, in her mind, they die. And it's, it's again, that sadness you get at the end of this chapter when she suddenly starts crying and says, I can't go to Winterfell much as I would want to. I have to go with you. This is where I need to be. Right. And of course, that journey is going to take them through the twins, as we will see in Catalan 9. 
And we see a little bit more buildup before we meet the fray brood at last. Uh, when, <laughs> as part of Rob's plan, he says we're going to, you know, uh, take the fort of the twins because Lord Frey's your father's bannerman. Isn't that so? The late Lord Frey, Catelyn thought. He is, she admitted, but my father has never trusted him, nor should you. <laughs> I mean, we just don't trust the phrase. I mean, we... We talked about about this back in Catelyn Five, where we get the Water Frey as introduced as being the late Lord Frey, and no one really being sure whether he planned to show up at the Battle of the Triton, fighting on behalf of Ares or on behalf of Robert and the rebels there. So that kind of what we're seeing here is that George R. R. Martin, at this point, seemingly has decided that the Red Wedding is going to be the ultimate end game for Catelyn and Rob in the story. So he is setting up the phrase to be untrustworthy bannerman, and as we're going to find out in the next chapter, like the, he. Waterfrey's actions so enraged Rob that he considers besieging the twins before progressing on to Jamie Lannister. But of course, he doesn't end up doing that, and that um, has terrible, awful consequences, although it probably would have had terrible, awful consequences if he had besieged it. But he has it has terrible, awful consequences in the form of the Red Wedding. So Red Wedding foreshadowing is starting to ramp up, which I'm excited to be exploring with you, and I think we're going to be seeing that throughout uh, A Game of Thrones on into Clash and into Storm of Swords itself. Speaking of terrible consequences, we do come back to Moat Kaelin, of course, in A Dance with Dragons, via Theon's POV. And, uh, of course, that wasn't fully formed out in George R. R. Martin's mind when he was writing this first book. But I do think you can see him creating this sense of, as we've been talking about, this kind of uh, dread and longing and haunted sense to Moat Kaelin of empires that have fallen and kingdoms that once were and the, the overall world of the children of the forest crumbling. And I think he he naturally drew on that mood for the, the for that Theon chapter. You were talking about how you know, nature is 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 fighting back against the Ironborn right. occupiers in that chapter because we don't see the Cranon men, and I kind of wish we did. But it also works really well that it doesn't even feel like people are doing this yeah. to the Ironborn. That like the neck itself, Moat Kaelin itself, is is rejecting the invaders. And uh, I, I love I think Martin does a really good job at not just setting up locations like this, but returning to them later and, and adding those layers in. When we return to White Harbor, for example, as you were talking about spending more time there, we eventually do with Davos and Dance. And part of why that works so well is Davos has been to White Harbor before and remembers it kind of nostalgically and has to confront the fact, oh, I'm here to fight a war. Like there's a winter and starvation going on. This is it's not quite what I was. Uh, yeah, I, I love how Martin uses setting to kind of mirror character like that. No, it's really, really good. And I think that you bring up a fantastic point that we don't see the Kranich men. And, uh, you know, there's that fantastic theory that's been kind of bouncing around that the Kranich men potentially descend from the children, from a union of the children of the forest with the first men. And I do wonder, you kind of wonder whether that's intentional on Martin's part that he's keeping these kind of magical type characters away from, from the eye of, of, of the reader at this point. I mean, we don't get the children of the forest until Bran's second chapter in Dance with Dragons. So we don't get him until the fifth book. So we're all the way, 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 way past like when they're first introduced in the narrative and, and old Nan stories to their actual introduction in the books themselves. We've yet to see a Kranic men in the story beyond Jojen and Mira Reed, as we will find in A Clash of Kings, having them kind of invisible, so to speak. And of course, having Howland Reed's moving castle kind of helps to augment our sense that these are magical, magical people and they're inhabiting a magical, magical land as well. And I think that's also really kind of augmented, too, by the way that Moat Kaelin is described. You know, as the World of Ice and Fire brought into the lexicon of uh, fan of the fandom, we have the oily black stones that would start appearing all over the place in, in Westeros and Essos. And here in Moat Kaelin, they're described as black basalt blocks. So those three towers that are standing there at Moat Kaelin themselves, 
do resemble oily black stones, which has led some people in the fandom, myself included, if I'm being honest, although I would not consider myself an expert on oily black stones or Lovecraftian imagery, to see Moat Kaelin as a potential location for oily black stones. And I believe, Emmett, you are something of an expert on all things Lovecraft. In fact, you've hosted panels on Lovecraft and the Song of Ice and Fire. So what do you think about Moat Kaelin in terms of it being a potential place where oily black stones were in place? Is that the black basalt blocks? Are they oily black stones? Is this a, a place where Martin is kind of infusing Lovecraftian uh, imagery here? And what does it all actually mean? What's it mean, man? Hardly an expert, merely an enthusiastic amateur. But <laughs> we were talking about the Cranog men and how they fit into this eerie, mystical world of Mokela. And part of that is because the Cranog men are very similar to and are probably related to the children of the forest. Yes. Who are the, who are like the real owners of this turf and they're the real founders of Mokela more than the Cranog men or the independent kingdom of the north. And the the way Mokalin is constructed from that oily black stone that pops up on all those other sinister Lovecraftian locations around the world of ice and fire, and the way it's described as like a god taking a bite out of a tower and spitting <laughs> parts of it across, like that's such like cosmic horror Lovecraft kind of language to describe a location. And what's interesting is that Mokalin setting-wise does not fit the general locations in the world of ice and fire where this kind of stone pops up. Right. Places like Old Town or Ashai, or Yiti, Sothorios, the kind of directly horror-influenced places mm-hmm. of the world. And they tend to be places out of the old gods' purview. They tend to be mm-hmm. connected more with, again, the, the gods of Ashai, the kind of dark, twisted magic that goes on there, the whole uh, drowned god, deep ones, clearly Lovecraftian-influenced mythology. The Ironborn is, seems to be connected to these stones. The, the Maze Maker is a species into that, maybe the giants. But not really the children of the forest, not really the mm-hmm. old gods. This is the kind of the one case, an exception where those two worlds merge. And that makes me think maybe Martin hadn't fully worked out what that kind of stone signified. He didn't have all the details of the Euron Lovecraft mythos that he'll get to later in the Feast for Crows and the Forsaken. At this point, he just knew he wanted to incorporate stuff like this. And Moat Kalin, as he was conceiving of it as this kind of old school fairy tale, Irish English border castle, just it just fit that world. And it, 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 it looks it stands out a little bit in retrospect, but I can see him wanting to do that uh, as he was writing the first book. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the world building aspects from A Game of Thrones, as we've been exploring here, are places where George kind of sets the imagery up. And perhaps in his kind of writing style, his gardening writing style, he just kind of sets as a location and moves on in the narrative. But then as he's progressing in the narrative and starts to realize like, OK, these things need to kind of mean something a little bit more than simply being these kind of mystical places that perhaps oily black stones and this kind of Lovecraftian imagery are, are intended to symbolize some of the magical horror-esque elements that Martin likes to embed in the stories themselves. I do think you make a fantastic point. Something I never, never considered is that we don't see oily black stones in places where the old gods are present. That's I, I've never even thought of it that way. So I think that's a fantastic point. And I've, it leaves me a lot to ponder. I, I have so many ponderings about this. Well, thank you, sir. I mean, the old gods tend to be connected to, you know, the colors white and blue, especially when you get to the others connection, and red only in terms of the weirwood eyes, which is, as John says, is a different kind of red than the red associated with Melisandre right. and R'hllor and Ashai. And that kind of red tends to link more with black colors. If you look at the Targaryens, if you look at the colors around Stannis, if you look at the Azor High colors or Euron's banner even, the, the red and black are the colors there. So this is the one case where they kind of meet. And maybe that's intentional. This, after all, is where Torrin Stark bent the knee to Egan the Dragon, True. Where, where those two worlds kind of met. So maybe Martin is deliberately showing, hey, this is where the black and red fire Azor High, R'hllor, Targaryen world meets the 
northern stark other children of the forest world but <laughs> it is Mo- mokalen is a fascinating place just architecturally and historically and obviously we will get more into that many years down the line <laughs> in a dance with dragons with a theon's chapter there but to shift back for our discussion section to the more grounded military stuff we have one of rob stark's big decisions big consequential moves in this chapter mm-hmm. which doesn't seem to necessarily be so on the first read but putting roost in charge of the infantry is a big big deal so what do you think, Jeff? What do you think of that decision that Rob Stark made? Does this doom him and prove that, like his father, he is dumb? I'm so over a fandom that looks at everything in retrospect. What I mean by that is that everyone looks at what Rob's decision, at what Rob is doing here as being just this stupid, dumb move. Like, look at stupid Rob putting Bruce Bolton in charge. Like, this is so dumb. Look at how he fucks up the Green Fork and probably throws the battle itself and is going to betray him down the road at the Red Wedding, and he's going to try and subvert the Starks at every single step of the way. But wait a minute. Like, let's look at where Rob Stark is and where Roose Bolton are as the characters at this point. I mean, Roose Bolton is set up in Eddard Six as being a merciless dude who wants to execute Barristan Selmy as a prisoner of war after the Battle of the Trident. And then we get him, you know, we we have stories that from Brand Six where they hang the, the skins of their enemies in the basement or in the dungeons of of the Dread Fort, and we have Roose Bolton kind of being creepy, and you know, these things are signals to us as readers that there's something up with this guy. But, but, at the same time, can we really blame Rob Stark for selecting Roose Bolton as the commander of the foot here? And can we blame Catelyn for that matter, too, of recommending that Roose Bolton be the commander of the infantry that is coming south to confront Tywin Lannister? I say no, but I'll turn it back over to you for a little bit, and I'll explain my rationale a little bit after you talk through a little bit more. I think you said it perfectly. You have to try and avoid presentism with discussions like this. As Roos makes clear in A Dance with Dragons, he made damn sure that neither Ned nor Rickard ever had reason to complain of him. Right. He, he, he ran a tight ship, a tight, horrible ship, <laughs> in the Dreadfort. So while he does creep everyone out instinctively, and Bolton history is full of gory details, there's no real warning signs as of yet that Rob should be heeding. Like... Creepy is not enough of a reason to not give a competent-seeming guy a battle command. Mm -hmm. And the calculation that you need someone with, quote, cold cunning seems temperamentally sound. And the great John could certainly rush in heedless to a situation and get everyone killed. I could definitely see that happening. But uh, on the other hand, and I'm going to put this as a question to you, good sir, because I think you might know better. The reason that both Rob and Catelyn come to this conclusion that you need someone with cold cunning to command the infantry is, as Rob says, they're all that's going to stand between Tywin and the North along with whatever bowman he leaves at Moat Kalen, which seems to imply that it's a realistic threat that Tywin would attack the North. And I'm curious what you think about that. I'm not necessarily in the boat that Tywin's plan was to go North. We don't get any indication in the next Tyrion chapter when they have their war council that Tywin's plan was to progress North from Moat Kalen and to despoil the North. It seems that Tywin Lannister's only goal at this point is to kind of knock the Riverlands out of the war itself so that the North would be politically and military, militarily isolated. Now, I mean, could it have happened at some point down the road that Tywin Lannister could be like, fuck everything, let's invade the North? Maybe. But we don't ever get the sense that that was what Tywin's plan was. Now, I think it's also important, it's important to consider that even though we don't get Tywin's idea that Tywin does never conceptualizes this. There's no reason for Rob to believe that this might not be what Tywin is planning. Rob does a fantastic job 
of essentially anticipating every single one of Tywin's moves. And like I said on Twitter, Rob does a great job because he also pantses Tywin Lannister at every step in the War of the Five Kings. And it's only because Tywin Lannister cheats that he actually wins the War of the Five Kings itself. Although, of course, as I said at the beginning, he does not actually win because there's no because the victory is is hollow and is immediately shattered when bad things happen, when Tywin dies and Cersei is left without allies at the end of the Feast for Crows. So is it possible that Tywin is going to go north? Yes. Is it something that is realistic? No. So I think that's probably where I come down on that. The only way I can really see Tywin turning north is if he thinks he's going to lose and he just wants to inflict maximum damage as he goes out. Other than that, I just can't see him abandoning King's Landing. And he'll say himself in... Tyrion 7, we're going to cover next week, that he really wants Rob out of the way so he can have a free hand to deal with Stannis, who, who as he'll say in Tyrion 9, he's considered to be the greatest threat the whole time. Obviously, we don't want to succumb to presentism ourselves. Rob doesn't know that Tywin is thinking that. But yeah, I find it, it weird that he would think Tywin would abandon King's Landing, or abandon the ability to take up a defensive position for the Lannister regime in King's Landing. I don't think that's likely. Regardless, while there were certainly other good options to lead the infantry, Robert Glover comes to mind. He seems like a really competent general on the northern side. He ends up as Roos's second-in-command before being stabbed in the back by Roos of Duskendale, eventually making it out to get involved in the Manderly plot and dance with dragons. Overall, I don't think this error reflects poorly on Rob's judgment because, as creepy as Roos is, there's just a lot of information Rob didn't have and couldn't be expected to have. Yeah, I mean, you also have to consider some of the, the logistics, too. You, Roos Bone brings a significant army to the fore. I mean, in, Dan- in A Dance with Dragons, they talk about that it was like two in ten of every Northman was coming back, and most of them were Boltons with a few Karstarks kind of scattered in, in, in between. So we're talking about potential for Roose Bolton bringing up 3,000 to 4,000 dudes to Rob Stark's cause. Roose Bolton is also a veteran of Robert's Rebellion and semi-canonically also a veteran of, of the Greyjoy Rebellion as well. So he is an experienced commander who had commanded men in war in the past. Maybe there is a, a greater argument to be made that perhaps Bruce Bolton should have been replaced as a commander of Rob Stark's uh, army in and around Harrenhal in Clash. But at the same time, Rob Stark is all the way in the Westerlands, so all of his information is limited to what he can hear for, through a large distance, also through a distance that is uh, compounded by problems that you have Lancer armies in and around that are that are cutting off lines of communication to and from the Westerlands to the Riverlands itself. You, you brought up Harrenhal, and Rob doesn't even give that order for Roos to take Harrenhal. Edmure does. Our lovable fuck-up Edmure totally gives that order, not Rob. And Rob has no idea that Roos is thus going to be able to have his own ravenry, which is hugely important for Roos to be able to communicate on his own with Tywin and Walder Frey and arrange the Red Wedding. And as you say, Roos brings probably more than any other lord to the table in terms of number of men in the Northern Army. Because the Mandalays, as we said, sent only a percentage and kept a lot back to sea to the defenses of White Harbor. And I don't think any other Northern House can match either the Boltons or the Mandalays. And it seems like Bruce brought almost everybody. Ramsay only has a couple hundred men uh, left in the Dreadfort Guard to bring back to fight Sir Roderick. So, yeah, he's a significant player in the Northern Coalition. It, it does make sense to, to give him that force. And it's, it's going to be a lot of fun, though, tracing the fallout of those decisions. As I said in Brand 6, Bruce is a lot of fun as a character. So I'm eager to get to that. And I think that just about wraps us up for our Game of Thrones Catlin 8. So thanks for listening, as always, everybody. Yes, as always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcast. We do read all of our reviews, comments, and uh, all of our tweets as well. So thank you so much for all those who have participated that way. Keep them coming. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacastasoiaf. 
to get special episodes, which we do once a month for our $5 and above patrons, or to check out early releases of our weekly episodes, which our $10 and above patrons can get. Also, show notes and several other goodies available for our patrons, so check that out if you haven't already. Uh, hit us up at notacastasoiaf on Twitter, or our email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan P. Fish on Twitter, Brendan P. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars of Politics of So, join us next week for a Game of Thrones Tyrion 7 where we finally get to meet that motherfucking son of a bitch asshole, Kevin Lannister. No, I mean Tywin. Both. Well, I mean both, but, you know, mostly Tywin Lannister. Yeah, we meet, we meet Kevin Lannister and no one else of significance. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Jeff. <laughs> But yes, we're finally getting to Tywin. We've, we've been building up to this for quite a while. We badmouth Tywin regularly on the podcast and elsewhere. And apologize for nothing. We're going to be doing a lot more of it. Never apologize. We will never, ever apologize. <laughs>